in March, New Mexico passed a bill that made public school lunches free to all students who apply. Senate Bill 4, universal meals with all the accountability measures and support of local producers and farmers is now the law of the land. New Mexico joins a handful of other states that offer universal free lunch meals. But most states still charge students for food. If we think about like everything else that's free at school, things like textbooks and bus rides and all those kinds of things, those are free. Why is food different? From Virginia Humanities, this is With Good Reason. I'm Sarah McConnell. Today, we chew on the history of the National School Lunch Program. And later, the severe shortage of mental health resources in the school system. But first, we all remember what it was like entering the social battleground known as the school cafeteria. Aside from the usual cliques, there were two types of students, those who brought their lunch and those who bought their lunch. Marcus Weaver Hightower is an educational foundations professor at Virginia Tech. He's the author of Unpacking School Lunch, Understanding the Hidden Politics of School Food. He says public schools should offer free lunches to all students. I was one who always ate the school lunch, especially in elementary school, and just whatever was served, that's what I ate. As I grew, I stopped eating the school lunches and sort of moved on to getting snacks out of the vending machine and things like that. And I hear quite often from my students nowadays who are undergraduates and just left high schools that they do kind of the same thing, that it's not cool to eat school lunch. So was your preference as you got older not to be stigmatized by buying a school lunch? You always wanted to bring it? Yes. And of course, you know, in addition to not being cool, I think there are a lot of kind of logistical issues, if you will, that students have to deal with in in terms of how long the line is to get the school lunch, whether there's, you know, appealing food there and and things like that. And I I think as a totality, I I didn't want to waste my precious lunch minutes in high school in actually having to stand in line for a lunch. Take me through the federal school lunch program and where we are now and how we got here. Well, about 31 million school children every day eat a national school lunch program provided lunch. Your family's income level determines whether you get it for free, whether you pay a reduced price, which is 40 cents per meal, or whether you pay full price and the districts will set what the full price meal is. And this is a program started in 1946. Really, I think World War II prompted a a more formalization, if you will, of the actual National School Lunch Program because there was widespread concern that Army recruits were being rejected for medical reasons that were related to nutrition. And oftentimes it was a kind of malnutrition and undernourishment that were prompting recruits to get rejected. When did you see school lunches start to become mixed with racial politics? Well, actually about the same time. The 1940s, of course, were a tumultuous era for the racial politics in the United States as well. You can see from the people who were putting it together that they were very much concerned about not having school lunch be a wedge used to end segregation in schooling. The general idea is that if the federal government can give or withhold funds, they could say, well, you can't use these funds if you have segregated schools. And this was particularly important for southern states, southern agricultural states in particular, because they had large African-American populations and also wanted to be able to sell their agricultural surpluses to the federal government in this. And there was a fear that if they had the segregated schools and you had to sort of negotiate that point with the federal government that it would be hard to turn down the money to be able to do that. You write that during the 1980s, President Reagan wanted to reduce the cost of the school lunch program. Why was that? What was underlying that? Well, when the conservatives came back into power, there was 
uh, around the world a kind of conservative movement going on to try to reduce welfare programs, reduce the social safety nets. And in part, it was because of a kind of real reaction to economic distress that was going on in the late 1970s, especially, you know, the gas rationing and a huge spike in food prices and, and things like that. Reagan and other conservatives basically pinned the reason for that as being high social spending. His solution to, you know, trying to get control of the budget and reduce sort of spending on what he considered welfare programs was to go after things like the National School Lunch Program, welfare direct payments, all those kinds of things. How did it come to be that there was a great media frenzy over the administration of that time trying to reclassify ketchup and relish as vegetables in the school meal? What was that about? Yeah, so as part of the kind of coping mechanisms that they were hoping to give to folks who were running school lunch programs, the USDA suggested lots of cost-saving measures. And one of the measures that they happened to suggest was using relish, pickle relish, as counting as a serving of vegetables. And I think ketchup might have been the sort of apocryphal story, but the Democrats ran with it and, and said that, okay, well, if you give somebody 10 French fries and a packet of ketchup, you've got two vegetables there. So they obviously had a, a field day and it's really interesting that this so tainted Reagan's presidency, the sort of ludicrous image of ketchup as a vegetable, that it's even mentioned in some of his obituaries when he died in 2004. So it was certainly something that stuck as a rather ridiculous stance on how to cut the National School Lunch Program. Where are we nowadays? Where is the National School Lunch Program these days? How did it evolve since then? Right. And so up until the late 2000s, there wasn't a whole lot of real tinkering, if you will, with what was going on in the National School Lunch Program. Where that really changes is with the Obama administration. The changes that he did and his administration to the National School Lunch Program with the Healthy Hunger-Free Kids Act that was passed in 2010. That was the largest non-inflationary addition to reimbursements uh, for the program. And even though it was only six cents per meal, that was, you know, when you talk about doing seven billion meals, six cents does add up quite a lot. Now, it's certainly not the kind of addition that might be needed to do some of the things that they had hoped, like, you know, more scratch cooking, uh, healthier items, that kind of stuff. It was, again, a, a kind of historic rise in the in the prices. What would you like to see? Having done all this research, what would your recommendation be for how we do lunches? Well, the book has, I think, 15 or so recommendations. And I think chief amongst those is having a universally free school lunch program. But other things that I think are really important is to be intentional about how we structure the ways that kids eat. It is a huge important part of our culture, having teachers have conversations with kids about, you know, why it's important to eat your vegetables and where does this particular food come from? So lots of ways that we should be teaching kids through food. What we currently teach them is what they need to do is come in and hurry as fast as they can. Some kids are eating at 1030 in the morning for their quote unquote lunch. They're eating with sporks on plastic trays. You know, what is that teaching them about sustainable materials and uh, things like that? So I think that thoughtful way of using food and the eating experience as as a teaching tool is is really important. Do you think there's much will now in Congress and elsewhere to have universally free lunches for kids in schools? Absolutely. There are many, many advocates in Congress. In fact, there was a proposed bill to continue the free school lunches 
post-pandemic that basically got stalled by the Kentucky Republican Rand Paul. So we're basically back to where we started from because of one senator. But the nice part about what that means is that there was a huge backing for this within Congress. I think you can see as certain states start doing this. So California has universally free school meals. Maine does just in the past week or two, both Wisconsin and Minnesota. So I think there is a lot of political will out there for free school lunches as just a common sense, moral and ethical kind of policy to improve the health and academic futures of kids. Marcus Weaver Hightower is an Education Foundation's professor at Virginia Tech and the author of Unpacking School Lunch, Understanding the Hidden Politics of School Food. Being a parent is hard work. It's also super expensive. Christine Schull is a professor of early childhood at Northern Virginia Community College. She says a year of toddler or infant care can cost more than a year of tuition at a public university. Christine's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. Christine, you've called early childhood education the infrastructure that underpins the rest of the economy in some ways. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean when I say that the early childhood workforce is the invisible infrastructure is that we cannot do anything else without it. If you want to have someone build other sorts of infrastructure like roads and bridges, then you need to have people that are working on those things. And some of those people will be parents. So where are those children You know, where are they spending their day? Are they getting what they need for learning? It's also going to be infrastructure for later because those children need to get what they need in order to grow up and become part of the workforce later as well. And we saw that during the pandemic, certainly, when people were scrambling to figure out how they were going to work if their children didn't have somewhere to be. And when we came back to work post or sort of post-pandemic, how's the infrastructure holding up for parents of small children? Well, that's really tricky. We have a a pretty big shortage right now in early learning. We lost a lot of programs during the pandemic. A lot of programs shut down. The, The profit margins for early learning are very slender. We heard from the field that a lot of people maxed out credit cards to try to keep their programs open so that children had somewhere to be. And we have really not fully recovered. And even when we have bricks and mortar buildings that have reopened, we now have a shortage of teachers because a lot of people during the pandemic also left the workforce. And, you know, part of this is tied to the issue with wages, that wages are are very low for folks that work in early learning. So some of them went and got other kinds of jobs working in, you know, big box stores or other places where it was a similar wage. So now you have some buildings that are open that are not fully open because there are not enough teachers to fill those positions. What are parents doing? Well, they're scrambling. Parents are scrambling. I'm contacted continually by early learning programs that are looking to hire teachers that have waiting lists for parents. I hear from parents. In fact, recently I was speaking to someone that, you know, works in early learning and they have a, you know, a very high up influential position. And that person said to me, I'm having difficulty finding early learning for my own child. So you would think that even folks that work in the field of early learning would be able to solve this problem, but it really is a difficult situation. What sort of people are you teaching? You're teaching students at Northern Virginia Community College. You also teach at the University of Maryland. These are future educators who are going to go become what? Well, I have the best students. In the world. I really do. Um, So at Northern Virginia Community College, I have students that are working on a 16-credit career study certificate in early childhood, a 31-credit certificate in early childhood, and the associate's degree. And these things stack into each other and also can lead to a baccalaureate degree with teacher licensure. And what kind of money can they make with these various certificates and degrees? 
So that's part of a really big conversation that we've been having in the field for a while. There is a problem with wages in early learning because where the kind of money you make depends entirely on what setting you're in. So if you're in a setting that's attached to the public school system, you're going to make more money than if you are in other kinds of settings out in the community because it's not subsidized. The schools that are through the public school system or are in any other way receiving federal or state or local money, it's just different. It's subsidized and you can pay teachers more. As I mentioned, the profit margins are really slender. You can't ask parents to pay anymore. After all, it's already more expensive than a year of undergraduate tuition at a state institution. What is? A year of um, toddler or infant care is more expensive than a year of undergraduate tuition at a no. flagship institution. Yes, that's true everywhere. So a, a year of tuition for an infant in Virginia is more expensive than, let's say, tuition at George Mason or Virginia Tech. And by that, you mean it's about how many thousands of dollars? Easily what? Easily 16000 It can be more. In some places, it is. The District of Columbia is particularly high. But this is a pattern that across states, if you look at Maryland, for example, you'll see that center-based infant care is more expensive than a year of undergraduate tuition, let's say, at the University of Maryland. I remember when I had small children, I couldn't wait for them to be able to get into the public kindergarten because then the burden of childcare and all the other things would be relieved. Oh, yeah, that was a big relief for our family, too. It's tough. And if you have two children that are young at the same time, how do parents afford to do that? It's difficult. They can't pay anymore. And it's not as though the teachers are making that salary. And I can't even really say that it's like a big profit industry because it's not so much that. It's just that it's expensive. You have high ratios that you need with young children and you have, you know, lots of stuff that you need, materials and and toys and planning time. And, you know, to do it well, it costs money. What do you most want to see if you could wave your wand but it was a realistic wand. <laughs> if, if there's some next steps in early childhood education that we could do as people and a government and as parents getting together to advocate for this on a broader basis. Well, what I would most want to see is I would want to see increased funding in a way that allows a lot of different types of programs to access funds to pay teachers more. Because we're asking that they have strong professional development backgrounds, and they should. They need that. Spending the time with young children, being an educator, that takes specialized skills. That's not something that just anyone can do, even if they like kids. And yet, we're not really paying them in a way that is commensurate with that level of responsibility and training. So... What I would want to see is I would want to see increased availability of funds so that we can start subsidizing early learning. We subsidize children when they hit that K through 12 system, and that's why public school teachers can make something closer to a living wage. I was a public school teacher before, you know, moving into the higher ed space, and I and I loved it. And, you know, the debate around teacher pay in general is is a wider one, but I will at least say that when you look at early learning, it's it's very difficult to call that a living wage. Christine Skull is a professor of early childhood at Northern Virginia Community College. She's been named an outstanding faculty member by the State Council of Higher Education for Virginia. The pandemic turned students' worlds upside down. Rates of anxiety and depression jumped, especially among students of marginalized identities. But my next guest says there aren't enough mental health resources in the K-12 school system to meet the surging demand. Leandra Paris is a psychology professor and Director of Diversity and Inclusion at William & Mary. Leandra, what do you find the biggest mental health crisis is among students these days? I know the pandemic was super tough, but where are people experiencing the most harm? You know, I think it really depends on their community, where they're living. I know social media has been cited as one of the big reasons, I think we're constantly being bombarded by a lot of information, a lot of microaggressions, a lot of outright racism and sexism. And I think a lot of that for our youth, that's where they spend their time. So our kids are on their phones like 
every day, right? So they're not getting away from the constant reminders of bad things that are happening. And so because of that, they're really struggling to keep up with the demands, especially after the pandemic or during the pandemic, depending on where you are. Do you ever hear from kids specifically about the sorts of things they're experiencing online that are really stressing them out or raising their anxiety? Yes. So I know we were having a conversation recently with a group of students and they were talking a lot about just the constant news, right? Like every small thing that happens, you're constantly getting notifications about the school shootings and minute by minute updates. And that's a lot to filter through while also constantly comparing themselves to each other. So we all know when we get on social media, we put our best face forward, even if it's not real. And one student actually said, you know, the internet is a mask. It's a mask that everyone wears to be beautiful, to be perfect. And you're constantly comparing yourself to that. And it creates this sort of pressure. So on one side, you have tons of information about how wrong the world is and how scary the world is, and also a ton of information about what's wrong with you and how you're not living up to expectations. And so those two things together are, it's hard. It's hard for adults to handle. And with teenagers, it's all about your peer group. So it's an even more salient problem for them. You know, all of us are just horrified by the decades-long spate of school shootings, I wonder if with your background in student mental health, you have more insight into what we might do to intervene before these traumas happen. Yeah, it's it was kind of, you know, after a Columbine, um, the idea that school shooters were victims of bullying and they were pushed there, you know, that came kind of like a, a narrative that isn't necessarily, you know, accurate. There's definitely some mental health needs that are there. You know, when the pandemic happened, I forget who said it, they were like, you'll always know if you underreacted, but you'll never know if you overreacted. And and I think as a society, we have underreacted to the mental health needs in schools. And this is part of it. We know we're underreacting. And when we see school shootings, it's another reminder that our students are not getting the mental health supports that they need. They're not getting basic needs met. And the other side of it is whenever I teach these, I I teach a crisis prevention intervention class, and one of the biggest indicators of whether or not a student follows through with a threat or follows through with suicide is whether or not there is a weapon at home, if there's a gun at home, if they have access to that. That's the biggest predictor. So if you're looking at the data and you're saying, well, the biggest predictors is access to weapons at home and a lack of mental health support, those are your two areas that you need to focus on. And that's what data has consistently showed decade after decade. Which students are at the highest risk for developing mental health issues, would you say? So the latest report that I was reading through the CDC data was showing that girls are actually more likely, they're almost double the risk in terms of, you know, having senses of hopelessness and sadness. But that's not to say that the risk for males are zero because it's not because it's up by 60% for girls and by 30% for boys. I would also say anyone who has an identity that is currently not supported, not culturally accepted or not being celebrated or is actively being attacked. So the example I can give is during COVID, we saw a 900% increase in anti-Asian rhetoric and narratives online. A 900% increase in how often our Asian American youth were seeing their identities being attacked, where they were personally being a target, where they were being made fun of or being told things that are microaggressive. And so that is a huge jump. Do you have suggestions on how parents can work to mitigate these issues? That is, I, like, as a parent, (laughs) I struggle with that, too. Like, I'm always, like, talking to students. I'm like, so, like, as a mom, what should I be doing? Um, And a lot of it is being honest and say, "This this is tough. You also should not have to experience this. What you're feeling right now, I want to validate that. I think the worst thing that we can do is invalidate it and say things like it's in your head or it's just a rite of passage or this is just how life is because I don't think students feel heard. I don't think students feel supported. And when they don't feel supported or they don't feel like they have social support, that's when I get really, really concerned because that's the number one predictor of coping, adaptive coping and being able to to grow. The other one is modeling. I know for me, my son is very anxious. And so when things happen and I'm like, you know, I saw this post online and I'm really worried about it, like I just talk it out with him. He doesn't ask. 
And I just kind of say, this is how my day was. And here's what I did. Like, what do you think about that? And I think it helps model for children that you're not the only one going through it. And here's what's been working for us. Here's what I've learned, not in a condescending, preachy way, right? But more of a like, let me have a real conversation with you about these real world things that are happening. Do you think there are enough mental health resources to meet the surging need among young people? We do not. I'm not going to lie. This keeps me up at night. We are in such a workforce shortage when it comes to mental health, particularly school-based mental health, where students have access to these services during the school day. It's really important that we have enough school-based mental health professionals. So this is your school psychologists, your school counselors, your social workers. And right now, all three of those fields are at such a workforce shortage. So I'm a school psychologist. I can speak, you know, we have a recommended ratio of one to 500, but the actual number is closer to one to 1500 or one to 1600, depending on your state. Oh, that's awful. And so we're triple the recommended amount in terms of our caseload, which means we don't have time to really delve into some of the mental health because we're so focused on, you know, testing and and helping and consulting with behavioral concerns that pop up in the classroom and school counseling and social work are also in similar workforce shortages. So we have this huge increase, nearly tripled need for mental health services coupled with a shortage. Do you think we need to step back and look at at what we're teaching in school and try to see it differently so that we're not emphasizing academic competition as much necessarily in this day and age as well-being? Oh, yes. I love that. I um, In our training program, I'm always asking my students, what's the point of school? Like, And they're like, oh, like to learn how to do reading and math and science. And I'm like, but what's the point of school? And the point of school is to help individuals, to help citizens of our society reach their potential and be fully functioning, contributing members. And if we want that, we need to be teaching things like adaptive coping, stress management, you know, how to fully engage with the people around you, how to understand people's perspectives. Those are the skills that really produce people or workforce that's stable, that's steady, that's resilient. And so I really think that as schools, we need to, yes, you're right, take a step back and what is our purpose? Why are we here? And recognizing that not all students are going to be coming in with the same level of mental health support as other students. Leandra Paris is a psychology professor and director of diversity and inclusion at William & Mary. This is With Good Reason. We'll be right back. Welcome back to With Good Reason from Virginia Humanities. The College of Education at the University of Mary Washington recently unveiled the STREAM initiative. It's a place for teachers and students that has a makerspace and an Imaginarium. Christina Peck and Kevin Good helped design it. They wanted to inspire teachers and spark their students' passions. They're both at the University of Mary Washington, where Christina Peck is the Director of Clinical Experiences and Partnerships, and Kevin Good is a special education professor. Christina and Kevin, what is STREAM? I've heard of STEAM and I've heard of STEM. What's STREAM? So STREAM stands for Science, Technology, Engineering, Reading, Writing, Arts, and Mathematics. It's a lot of different things, but it's this idea that STEM fits into the curriculum and it fits into the curriculum for everyone. It's also a great opportunity for us to encourage the creative thought because sometimes we get into the idea of it's just coding, it's just robots. It's, you know, it's that real technology piece is what a lot of people get caught on when it comes to STEM. And by doing stream, we're also saying, hey, there's art. We have to draw prototypes. We have to make them and we can make them out of different materials. So it helps broaden the box a little bit. And are you mostly still, however, appealing to the STEM teachers when you give their students and the teachers this sort of stream um, creativity boost? I will say for our field trips, we are doing a lot of science-based, but one example, we had a session when a group of fifth graders came in that was about using 
movement. So dance, using movement to help teach sound. So the students came in, got a presentation from one of our faculty members. And in the end, they made a dance that represented the different types of sound waves. And in April, we're going to host a literacy focused STEM event. So we're actually working with a, a literacy uh, teacher to, to do a STEM event and how literacy wraps into STEM. Tell me about the space. And is it mostly a space and a space equipped or is it more about programming and inviting people into the space? I will say it started with the space. We were very fortunate to have a fantastic newly equipped makerspace. And then we've transformed more into a mindset. That's what we've really been trying to encourage. We've been hosting field trips an hour ago. We just finished hosting uh, 100 fifth graders on campus. We can't fit all of them in our makerspace. So we had to find other locations around campus so that we could facilitate the group size. So when we look at it, some of it was very low tech to no tech and some of it was high tech, but it's about really bringing that mindset in that everybody's a maker and it doesn't matter what equipment you have or what space you have. It's just the opportunity to engage in content in a different way. You know, you think back to your own experience growing up, and it was hard to find an occasion where you felt like, I'm really being like a scientist. That has been some of the biggest feedback we've gotten, whether it's our observations of listening to the students come through, hearing them say stuff like, this is fun. Learning's fun. Wow, I get to be in a lab. One kid one time actually said, they're going to let us in there. And we're like, of course, what, we want you in here. Like this is, we want this to be available for everybody. But they thought it was like this forbidden, far, you know, far reaching idea. And we love that we're opening doors for students who may have never had that opportunity. Which students get to come there? How do you invite groups of students and what age groups are coming? It started off with invitations to our local gifted programs. And we started there because we knew we had to start somewhere. And we knew that those programs were already integrating the STEM concepts. And then it became word of mouth. And we knew we were piloting it this year. And it really was a first come, first serve basis. We have hosted mostly fifth graders. We have found that that's been a real sweet spot, but we've also had sixth, seventh, and eighth graders on campus. And we also hosted a group of students who are part of the Spotsylvania REACH program, which is for students with disabilities who have aged out of the traditional K-12 setting, but they were accepted into this program to help them transition. And they were able to come on campus a couple times and work with Kevin's students directly to one, help our students better understand the process of transition, but secondly, to actually work with them in an activity and help these students design and build a product. And it's really this idea that it's everyone, and that's really what we're trying to, to be diligent in building of trying to, as this continues to grow by word of mouth, to really build this idea that everyone belongs in this space, everyone belongs in this mindset of of being a maker. And not just so-called gifted classes. Exactly right. right. Yep. What else are they doing when they are there? Help me understand what happens with the STREAM initiative. You have a digital maker space. What is that? So our digital making studio is is really all about digital creative arts side. So how do you film? How do you do audio? How do you edit and put everything together? How do you do those those creative components of STEM, as well as just the educational outreach side of it? And that's actually where I'm sitting at today right now is inside of our digital studio of, and we're working on rolling out some new equipment. So I'm in the process of inventorying new equipment today after our field trip. <laughs> and then we also have a makerspace, which is all the equipment you could think of almost. So right now we just got in a Glowforge, which is a high-powered laser cutter. And so that's been the, the newest, latest thing that just came in. So everyone's excited about that right now. But we have everything right down. That's great. <laughs> it is. Right now we have everything from, from those to 3D printers to sewing machines and dress forms and all kinds of crafting materials because you have to build prototypes. And so building those prototypes lets you reimagine and rethink 
what it's going to look like when you move up to that next level. And maybe you sew something together because it's out of textiles or, or maybe you're designing it and getting ready to put it into a CAD software system uh, to be able to run a print on it or to be able to cut it out of different materials, be it wood or leather or, or metal or, or plastics and actually build a working object of whatever you've designed to meet whatever need that you have. And I do want to, you know, give a huge kudos and shout out that the reason we got a lot of this equipment was our partnerships. We were very fortunate to receive a donation of equipment from the Naval Surface Warfare Center at Dahlgren. They have seen what we're trying to do and they are really supportive at our effort to help create future scientists, future STEM leaders, not just teachers. We have to create teachers to make future scientists, but we're also doing that ourselves by providing these opportunities for students. So they did donate a large chunk of the materials that are down there that are making it possible for what we're doing. I read they actually came and they brought some sophisticated robots. And in one test, students were tasked with programming the robots to make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Do I have that right? It is an example of teaching kids how algorithms work. So before you even have them code, it's a great example where you have someone say, I'm the computer, tell me how to make it. And so they give directions and it's so, the kids get so into it and it's as a bystander, very funny because they'll forget to tell you to open the jar of the peanut butter and they'll say, get out the peanut butter. And you see the person there with the knife, just like banging at the top of the peanut butter. So it really helps them visualize with something they can relate to the ideas behind an algorithm, which will then create the program that you have to be able to tell the computer all the steps. You can't assume it just knows what to do next. So it was a great introduction to get them thinking about how robotics work. And then they got to see some robots actually in action. One was one that they throw into buildings. And so watching the kids' faces when they threw the robot and they were like, oh, we're not allowed to throw technology. Oh, no, was just priceless. But they're like, no, this is what it's made for. (laughs) I was going to say, that's one of our biggest benefits of having a, a partner like Dahlgren is we're able to show kids not just what it looks like in schools, but what it looks like in the next step as a professional. Like if you go out and you have this career, these are the things you're going to be working with. And exposing kids to that reality of helping them see it beyond just the, some of the things we can do in our classrooms, but to see what that next step looks like, to me shows that trajectory. Helps kids see that aspirational moment of, I could do that. I'm really interested in what they just showed me. And it also is vital for our local community. So that this work is not just connected in in the things that we see in research and what we know as teachers to be doing, but it's connected to our community and showing kids what's available to them in their community to go get a college education, to come back and live back in their community and do the things that they want to do and to continue to build our community. So I see it as as a vital 360 degree moment that our students are able to see, imagine and know that there's a path for them in their community. How important is it to you that colleges and universities interact in this way with schools in their areas, actually having colleges and universities helping local schools? I think it's essential. As you mentioned earlier, we're seeing more and more burnout. These teachers in our K-12 schools cannot do this alone. They need support. They need help. And we are in a position to be able to do that, whether it is through providing opportunities like this, we're able to do these field trips at you know, a very low cost to the districts. They're just paying for transportation at this time. We're not charging them anything to come to campus, providing those opportunities or providing training and, you know, knowledge because we have content experts across campus, whether it is in the humanities or math or science. We have people who this is what they do to be able to give that knowledge or lend that knowledge out. And then we have, you know, the College of Education, which is here to help support and create teachers. And we learn just as much from them as I think they learn from us because they're the ones who are out there every single day doing this. And that helps us 
better prepare the teachers of tomorrow when we know what the classroom of today looks like. Well, Christina and Kevin, this is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us. It's been a pleasure. Christina Peck is Director of Clinical Experiences and Partnerships at the University of Mary Washington. Kevin Good is a special education professor at the University of Mary Washington. As deep AI fakes and other disinformation spread around the internet, the ability to critically think has never been more important. Tricia Easterling is an elementary science education professor at Radford University. With classes like, what's so critical about thinking and will it hurt? She's dedicated her teaching to boosting her students' critical thinking skills. Tricia, tell me about your teaching career and when you first started noticing that students really don't seem to have the critical thinking skills they used to. Well, um, I've been teaching since 19, ooh, that's a, 92 in the public school systems as a science teacher. And I have been working at the higher education level for some time. I've been at Radford University. This is year 20. And so um, as a classroom teacher, you have different skill sets you bring in to the college classroom. One of them is like, you can be a good teacher, but to help students learn is a little bit different. It sounds similar, but it's not. So when I started helping students learn, like working one-on-one with them with projects, I started noticing a significant shift and I started documenting what was happening in 2014. And so I started collecting data from them and looking at how I could help. I started asking myself, what does it mean to think critically? And I couldn't operationalize it. I I knew when I wasn't doing it. I knew when I was using poor decision-making skills or, or not being as flexible in my thinking. And so I thought, how do I share this if I can't even operationalize it myself? So what do you mean in 2014 you started really noticing there was a drop in critical thinking skills? Like what? So when students would get frustrated easier than normal, that zone between I'm challenged by something and I'm frustrated, that zone used to be much bigger. It used to be students could work on a challenge for quite some time and not get so frustrated that they gave up. And I found them starting to retract their efforts like legs on a turtle. They just would sit there and not move. And I, and I was like, what's the next thing to do? Come on, this is challenging, yes, but you can do it. So I noticed that their zone of grit was much, much shallower, much smaller, if you will. Give me an example of sort of pre-2014 behavior and post. (laughs) Right. Well, I just started noticing a considerable difference, and it certainly has been exacerbated by COVID. Okay, a student would be working on what we call a granular objective, one day's lesson. What can you get done in 20 minutes in a second grade classroom or when you have a standard classroom of 45 minutes in the seventh grade classroom, whatever. When they were designing this granular objective of what can I get done in a day, they would get frustrated and move on and they'd try something different and they'd go, well, it's still too much. And they would have a hard time making it simple enough that a small young learner could follow them, but they would still try and they would eventually get to where they picked the right examples and they picked really logical, easy to follow progression of ideas. And since then, 2014, it's considerably different. They give up and they, they almost want to not try and guess. They just go, well, I don't know. And the uncertainty of it gets the better of them. And they stop making as much effort. Do you think that this was Google? Like, we can now Google all questions. And therefore, it's not so much that I don't have the grit to want to figure it out. But, you know, why do it? How smart is that? Right. So students today have a wonderful base of factual knowledge. They have a wonderful sense of conceptual knowledge, that interrelationship between basic ideas in a discipline and the larger structure. But where they're lacking is that procedural knowledge, how to do something. For example, like the skills or the algorithms or the techniques 
or knowing how to determine when to use a different uh, procedure. So what I noticed was they started spending more time on their phones. I would ask them, what's your average daily screen time? And they would tell me, and it was astonishing. Well, if you look online, you'll see now that, you know, depending on which sites you believe, that about five and a half hours is the average for an American, not just a high schooler or college student. So their screen time was going up. And I thought, they're not out there trying. They're not doing the same effort in their homework. They're not sitting down putting the same types of hours in because they can't. If they're doing it five hours a day on their computer, on their phone, that's five hours that they weren't doing something, that they weren't sitting there practicing. So why should we care about that? Because on one hand, they have ever-sophisticated computers like we all do, as an extension of their very being, right? So yes, they do have a greater, broader knowledge base, at least at the tip of their fingers. Why is it so bad that they don't want to work so hard to figure stuff out? Because experience creates meaning. Your executive function, your ability to self-regulate, your ability to retain and work with information or focus your attention or filter distractions... All of that is shaped by your experience. And my argument is they're experiencing less. What I've noticed was they're not doing as much. They're not understanding the discomfort and the frustration that comes with with starting a project and finishing it through. Um, They're becoming increasingly uncomfortable with taking risks. That's interesting. Uncomfortable taking risks. Um, Do you think that has more to do with this lack of real-world experience, like you're saying, or is it something else? I think it's a confluence of things. But here, let me ask you this point. If you had to start a new hobby or um, a new sport and you've never done it before, would you rather do it in the privacy of your own home or backyard or on your street with just a few neighbors out? Or would you rather try these initial efforts with a stadium, an Olympic stadium filled with people in it. Okay? Right. right. So, so Definitely uh, for, privacy. Exactly. They don't have that same luxury now. They feel like when they try something, there's a crowd watching them just ready to pounce or judge. And so there's a relationship between risk and gain. And they're not risking as much. They're not risking the failure. They're not risking the mistake. And then when they make one, they're not entirely sure what to do about it. So what, what do you think teachers can do? What can parents do? What is a way of coping with this development? Right. So good teachers are going to teach until their students get it right. They put the stuff in front of them, the content in front of them in nice logical sequence. It's manageable size chunks. Great teachers teach until students can't get it wrong. And that means no matter what the format is, they can figure out what they need to do to get to that right answer. They can adjust and change their priorities. But a life-changing teacher helps students overcome their self-doubt. And that can happen at three. That can happen at 16. It can happen at 60. And that's something parents and teachers can do, is they can help students overcome their self-doubt by recognizing everyone's afraid of making mistakes, by expecting the mind to wander, expecting the mind to want to quit. I used to have a class. It was entitled, What's So Critical About Thinking? And Will It Hurt? (laughs) Because it will if you don't do it. If you're emotional in your decision-making versus using evidence, if you're arrogant, you're, you're not continually seeking to know and understand. You're cutting yourself off. So one of the things I've done is I've whittled it down to connecting or disconnecting. Are you connecting with the content or are you wanting to disconnect and and quit? Are you connecting with the students or are you just a content delivery system? Our job as teachers and as parents is to build capacity in others, not just give them the information but, but help them navigate it well on their own. I loved that you also mentioned that along with the Internet, you've seen ways that students have improved, that there have been silver linings to the easy access to data. 
You don't have to convince them that learning is important. You don't have to convince them to stay in school. You don't have to convince them that these skills are necessary. You know, used to be, why are we learning this? You know, what is this going to do for me later? No, no, they understand that everything they do builds capacity in them. And you don't have to teach voice anymore, that sense of personality on a page. They're adept. When you read one essay compared to another, you can hear that sense of voice. It comes through very well. COVID really made a lot of them recognize how much they want to to go to school and how much they overlooked how they really appreciate the opportunity to be within a group and learn from others. They have definitely gained an appreciation for the connections they make to others, the connections they make to a group. Trisha Easterling, this is fascinating. Thank you for talking with me on With Good Reason. You are so welcome. This has been wonderful. Trisha Easterling is an elementary science education professor at Radford University. Join Virginia Humanities and the University of Virginia's Karsh Institute of Democracy in Richmond, Virginia on April 20th and 21st. Hear from veteran political journalist Margaret Tlev and media pioneer Evan Smith about the future of journalism and democracy. Google Virginia Humanities and News Summit With Good Reason is produced by Virginia Humanities, which acknowledges the Monica Nation, the original people of the land and waters of our home in Charlottesville, Virginia. Our production team is Allison Quantz, Matt Darrow, Lauren Francis, and Jamal Milner. Cassandra Deering and Aviva Casto are our interns. Special thanks to Jenny Taylor for booking assistance. For the podcast or to comment, go to withgoodreasonradio.org. I'm Sarah McConnell. Thanks for listening.